Ruth chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 1. Ruth 3, starting in verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he will not, if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another, and said, Let it be, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother in law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word, that you give us understanding. That we see in it how Naomi and Ruth, both women who love you, could pursue good desires as ultimate things and that become idols. We've seen it how Boaz loves you and others more than anything he desires for himself. And Father, as we've seen it, a picture of our Redeemer, Jesus, who's come to set us free from slavery to our idolatry, who's come to pay the penalty due to us for our love of idols. Pray that you'd help us to see that, rejoice in it, repent before it, that we draw us ever nearer to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if we're honest, if we're honest, we often distrust the Lord, don't we? Even as believers who say we love the Lord and trust the Lord and have seen the Lord's grace and goodness, if we're honest, we often struggle with distrust. It comes out in various ways. Let me give you an example from when I was much younger. When I was 18 years old, I had arrived at Fresno Pacific University at the time, Fresno Pacific College, and I remember I was on campus and the first couple weeks I was dedicated to the fact that I was not gonna pay attention to any of the women there. I was gonna be focused on my studies. I was gonna get good grades and so I was committed to that. About the second week, I was walking across campus 
and I ran into Teresa, my wife currently. And I saw her currently, not as if I'm going to have another one or have had another one. You follow me, my wife. So thanks, Kristen, for pointing it out. The, uh, <laughs> I ran to my wife. She wasn't married to me then, right, okay? Who was to be my wife, right? So I, I ran to Teresa, and I saw her, and I was, like, pretty impressed. And uh, that's an understatement. I was very impressed. And so I stopped and started talking to her, and we proceeded to have a conversation for about two to three hours right there outside on the campus green area. And um, I thought to myself, man, I have got to marry this girl, right? I actually went back to my dorm room and told my roommate, I just met my wife today. And he said, you're crazy. You can't even get a date with that girl. And I said, you're right. I probably can't, but I'm going to try. And I started to pursue her. And Teresa said I was stalking her. Um, <laughs> it, it was a mild Christian form of stalking, but nonetheless... <laughs> She said I was pursuing her too much. So she said, well, I see you everywhere. You're following me all around the campus. And I said, listen, we have three classes together. I'm not following you around. I only have four classes, and three of them are with you. And there's only two common areas in this campus, so I'm going to run into you all the time. And she says, well, that doesn't explain chapel. You only have to go to half of the chapels, and you went to 100% of the chapels. And I said, that's right, I did. And the reason I went was not because I loved the chapels. It was because I knew if I went to 100%, I would definitely see her every time. So there you go. Um, so it was a little bit. But I liked hanging out with Teresa. And, and I noticed when I started hanging out with her and studying with her that she loved to drink coffee. She loved to drink coffee. In fact, every time we were together, she wanted to be drinking coffee. And I hated coffee. But I knew if I wanted to hang out with her, I had to drink coffee. So she asked me, do you like coffee? Do you want a cup of coffee? And I wanted to take matters into my own hands because I didn't trust the Lord would give me this woman. And so I lied, and I said, yes, I do. And, and so I started inviting her out to coffee all the time to study, right? And eventually, um, we got married. And it was wrong. I mean, not the marriage, but the lying. It worked. I got her, but I lied to do it. And here's my point. The problem isn't that my desire was bad. My desire to marry Teresa was not a bad desire. The problem was um, that I didn't trust the Lord in providing for that, and so I actually lied to her. And we want things oftentimes that the Lord gives us that are good desires, right? The Lord gives us good desires. And we want those things oftentimes more than we really want him. Thus we sin to get those things. And our sinful and distrusting actions often demonstrate that our desires have really become idols of our heart. We've taken a good thing and made it into an ultimate thing, and now we will sin to get it. We've exchanged God for that good thing, and we'll throw God's word out and God's will out, and we will do our will in order to get that thing. That's an idol of the heart. God gave me a good desire to have a wife, but I was going to sin to get that done because it turned into an idol in my life. And we love these idols more than we love the Lord or others. And those idols take control of us, and, and the only way to slay those idols, the only way to slay our idolatry, is to love the Lord above all else and to love others more than ourselves. But if we're honest, doing that seems impossible, doesn't it? Loving the Lord above all else and loving others more than ourselves seems to be an impossible calling. And it seems to be because it is. So today what I want to do is I want to look at the story in Ruth 3. 
I want to look at the story in Ruth 3, and I want to see what it looks like first to love our idols. What does it look like? Because we get a picture of that. The second thing I want to do is see what it looks like to love the Lord and others more than our idols. Because we get a picture of that as well. And then finally, I want to look at how God redeems us from our slavery to idolatry through Jesus. So let's look at the first thing. What does it look like to love our idols? Let's get a picture of what it looks like to love idols of the heart. Verse one, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her. Now who is Naomi? Why is she the mother-in-law of her? Who is her? Her is Ruth. This woman, Ruth, if you haven't been here for the series up till now, let me catch you up briefly. The story begins with a lady named Naomi who's married to a man named Elimelech. They have two sons. Their sons' names basically mean pining and weakling. Kilion and Malon, they, they, they don't have very good descriptive names. But here's what happens to Naomi, Elimelech, and her two sons. There's a famine in the land. And instead of repenting and turning to God and trusting God to provide, what Naomi and Elimelech decide to do is take matters into their own hands. And so they leave and they go to a, po- a, a pagan nation called Moab. So they go to the pagan nation of Moab and they go there just to sojourn for a little while. While they're sojourning there for a little while, they just basically move on into their sin. You know what that's like. I'm just going to walk away from the Lord just for a little while. We don't really say it that way right? We don't really say it that way. I'm just going to take this little detour into what I know is a lack of wisdom, and then what happens is we end up camping out there, and we end up moving in there. And in Naomi's case, her sons actually end up taking pagan wives. Ruth is one of them. Orpah is the other. They take the pagan wives. Well, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies in Moab. Naomi's, both of Naomi's sons die in Moab. And she's left with these two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. And she finds out that God's bounty has returned to the land, to Bethlehem where she's from. And she's moved to repentance by God's kindness and by the fact that she's come to an end of herself. Both of those things come together at the same time. And she's moved to repentance. You guys have experienced that, right? Where, God's, where you've been bottomed out and at the same time God's kindness is shown to you in a way that you never saw it before and that turns you to repentance and you look to him. You see, getting someone right at the bottom of the barrel isn't what causes repentance. It's not until they see God's kindness in the midst of that that they repent and turn to him. And that's what happens to Naomi. So she repents and she is returning to the land. And while she's returning to the land, her two daughter-in-laws have an option. Do you want to go with me or not? And Orpah says yes and Ruth says yes. And then Naomi says, let me remind you what this means. I want you to count the cost. If you're going to come with me, you're going to give up everything. You're going to give up everything. You're going to walk away from your family. You're going to walk away from your gods. You're going to walk away from your land. You're going to walk away from the potential of having a husband, really, because I can't have any more children. And even if I did, you're not going to wait long enough for them to grow up. So the likelihood of you having a husband and you having children and you being taken care of as a woman is pretty much gone. In other words, you're going to probably end up destitute if you come with me. And Orpah says, wow, okay, I'm going to go ahead and go back home. And Ruth says, I'll walk away from everything for your God. I'll walk away from it all and I'll trust in your God because I believe he's good too. And I want to trust him and I want to serve you, Naomi, to the end of my life. So she walks away from everything and goes and returns home with Naomi. So Naomi and Ruth are now home. And Ruth goes out one day to glean from the field. And what happens when they glean from the field is this. If you were poor in Old Testament Israel in those times, what would happen is 
God had given a law that if you own land, that you were to leave the external part of the land where the crops are untouched. You did not harvest those. You left them there so that poor people could come in and glean. They could take those crops, and that would provide for them food. And so what Ruth did is one morning she got up and said, my aging mother-in-law is in need of food. So she says to Naomi, I'm going to go out to the fields, and I'm going to glean some food. I'm going to bring it back and continue to care for you, Naomi. And she goes out. And when she goes out into the field, God works providentially to bring her into the field of a man named Boaz. And Boaz is what's called the kinsman redeemer. And I'm going to get into what that means in a little bit. But she comes into that field of the kinsman redeemer of Boaz. And he sees her and he immediately finds her to be beautiful. And he loves what he's heard about her character. The fact that she walked away from everything for the Lord. The fact that she serves her mother-in-law above all else. That she puts herself aside for that. And she says, you know what? Uh, He says, you know what? This This is a great woman. And so he starts to provide for her, and he gives her above and beyond what she really needs in provision and invites her to come and be taken care of by him and allows Naomi to be taken care of by him, sends her back with all kinds of grain. And Naomi sees this and says to herself, when she hears who Boaz is, when Ruth comes back with all the grain, she's like, who gave you all that? Whose field did you go into? She said, I went into Boaz's field. And Naomi instantly thinks, kinsman redeemer, he's one of our relatives, Ruth. He can take you as his wife. He can provide for us. He can do everything we've hoped for. He's the key to our future prosperity. That's him right there. And Naomi starts to get the wheels turning. I see God's hand at work. You walked into the right field. God is going to bless us. He's going to care for us. But Naomi is impatient. Did you hear that? Naomi is impatient. She doesn't want to wait for the Lord to provide. She has an idol Even though she's gone through all of these circumstances, even though she's seen the Lord provide when she and and bring her to repentance when she tried to take matters into her own hands before, she still becomes impatient and tries to take matters into her own hands again. And that's the scene we have here. Look at what it says. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, Ruth, said to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? In other words, I need to get a husband for you to take care of you, that it may be well with you. Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. In other words, he's going to be out at the threshing floor, which so you know, the scene of a threshing floor is it's out in the fields. It's very dark. When they're out there at night and they're finishing the job at the threshing floor, they'll often go to sleep there. You don't want to go anywhere else because it's dangerous because it is so pitch dark. It's, it's sort of like if you get out of the city. Have you guys ever gone far enough out of the city where you get out and you know what darkness really looks like? You know, because in the city, we don't really see it when it's dark. But when you're really dark, where you, it's a hard time seeing your hand in front of your face, darkness. That's the scene. He's going to be there tonight. That's where Boaz is going to be. And so look what Naomi suggests. Verse 3. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak. So take a bath. Put some perfume on. Right? Put on your cloak. Get yourself beautied up. And with the cloak... You're going to cover yourself up so no one can see you and go down to the threshing floor. This is sort of like, you know, she's going to go out and find a date. She wants to look her best, right? Smell her best, etc. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. In other words, let him finish his work, let him eat his meal, let him get his alcohol in his system. And then, listen to what he says next, verse 4. But when he lies down... 
observe the place where he lies. So he'll lie down with a blanket, then go uncover his feet, which can be also translated uncover his legs, and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Isn't that interesting? What is Naomi encouraging Ruth to do? Listen, if I, uh, well, I have a daughter. If I meet a man that I think might be good for my daughter when she's older, and she sort of likes him, and he sort of likes her, I'm probably not going to say, honey, you know what you ought to do is um, after he's worked all, hard all day and had a good meal and, and drink a good glass of wine when he lays down in bed, um, what you ought to do is get yourself all perfumed up, bathed up, looking good, and then sneak in there, lift up his covers, get into his bed, and wait for him to tell you what to do. It's probably not what I'm going to suggest to her, right? It's dark. No one will know. You, you can see what Ruth, is, or what Ruth is being encouraged to do, can't you? See, Naomi's saying, listen, if you sneak in there at night and you do this and Boaz follows through with it, you know what's going to happen? He's going to be ours. You're going to get him. You're going to get him, and then we're going to be taken care of. See, Naomi's going to take matters into her own hands. See, Naomi loved and returned to her idol of protection and provision, didn't she? She wanted security and she wanted provision. And even though she had repented from that idol before and saw the goodness of the Lord and trusted in his goodness, she still loved it, she was still in a battle, and she returned to it. That happens to us, doesn't it? Even though she'd already learned her lesson through a very difficult, harsh providence, imagine losing both your sons and your husband and being destitute. And knowing, okay, it's the Lord who provides. I can trust him. And yet, it's not too long after that that she loses trust in God's goodness again and returns to taking matters into her own hands again and encourages Ruth to participate in sin with Boaz to get what she wants, which is security and provision. See, what Naomi wanted was a good thing, wasn't it? She wanted a man to marry her daughter-in-law and take care of her and to give them a son. She wanted a man to redeem their land, which I'll get into that description in a minute. She wanted a man to take care of the family and provide for them so they would not be destitute. That's a good thing. But she wasn't gonna trust the Lord to provide it. She was gonna take matters into her own hands. She was gonna sin to get it. And you might say, well, isn't Ruth, when she says, okay, all that you say I will do, isn't she also participating in sin? Yes, she is. She is also participating in sin. But the focus of the narrator, of the storyteller here, is really on Naomi's sin and encouraging her daughter-in-law to participate in this. Now, Ruth is in sin as well. That's just not the focus here. It picked up a little bit in the next few verses. But we do this. We have good, God-given desires, and our problem is that we don't trust God to provide for those desires, so we take matters into our own hands and run off into sin. We let a good thing become an ultimate thing, and we sin to get it. Let me give you an example. You're a single man or a single woman, and you desire a good thing, a God-given desire of sexual intimacy, pleasure, of marriage. You desire a good thing. It's God-given. But then you end up taking matters into your own hands because you don't trust him to provide that for you. You take matters in your own hand through premarital sex. You take matters into your own hands through throwing yourself, ladies, at a man who you know is bad for you, but you're going to do what it takes to get him because you're so desirous of having a husband. It's a good desire. You just have to trust the Lord to provide and not try to take matters in your own hands. Men, you want the pleasure, so you seek it out. 
That pleasure is a good desire. Let, I want you to hear that. That pleasure, that sexual pleasure, is a good desire given by the Lord that's supposed to be satisfied in the context of marriage, but we don't trust him for it. And every time you lay down with a woman or man who's not your husband or wife, you demonstrate that you worship another God, don't you? You're an employee. You step on others or lie to get ahead. Employer, you cheat to get ahead. You, you want security and financial provision, and you'll do whatever it takes to get it other than trusting the Lord. You get caught up in pornography because you desire pleasure, you desire control, which is demonstrated in an idol in your life. Women, wives, I should say, you don't submit to your husbands because you rather run over him because you really are afraid that God doesn't really have your best in mind. So you want to take control because you don't trust this goofball, and you probably shouldn't, but you should trust the Lord that he has your best in mind. And therefore, trust him to work through your husband. You want security and safety, and that's good. You're just not trusting the Lord to provide it. Men, you're supposed to be seeking the good of your wives above all else. But we desire our own comfort. You know, comfort is a good thing. In the eternal kingdom, God is going to comfort us forever. He's going to give us pleasure forever. But we desire to get it our own way, and so we don't trust God to provide it through seeking the good of our wives. And so we take it in our own hands and we leave them behind. Parents, we don't trust the Lord and what he says with our children. So we flee off into all kinds of ideas that we think are wise that slowly but surely move us away from God and his people because we've set them up as idols. These children, they're good. We should want their success. We should want to raise them well. But when our parenting and our desire for their success equals our moving slowly away from the Lord and his people, we have gone into idolatry and missed the point. So what, I could go on and on. Here's the point. Our idolatry hurts other people and most importantly, it offends the Lord. That's what it does. How do you slay it? How is idolatry put to death? It's put to death through loving the Lord above all others, above all else, and loving others above ourselves. That's how it's put to death. With that said, let's look at a picture of it because there is a picture of it provided here. Look at verse six. In the way Boaz loves the Lord and Ruth and Naomi. So she went down, Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lay down at the end of the heap of grain. You can just see him at the end of a day, hard work, He's satisfied. He had a good meal, had a nice drink. Now he's satisfied. His heart is merry. He's ready to go to bed. He lays down. Then she, Ruth, came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? It's dark. He can't see her. And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant, Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now what has Ruth done that's a little different than what Naomi commanded? Naomi said, go in there, get under the covers, and wait for him to tell you what to do. Ruth decides, I want to marry this guy. And I'm willing to do what he wants to do, but I want to marry him. So when he says, spread, spread your wings over me, 
for your Redeemer. What, what Ruth is saying to Boaz is, listen, Boaz, I want you to participate in covenantal marriage with me. I want you to marry me. She, in a sense, goes in there and proposes to him. And also says, in a sense, you can have the benefits of that covenantal marriage now, but I want you to marry me. And Boaz responds, verse 10, and he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. He's not an old pervert here, okay? Woman comes in, gets under the covers and says, spread your wings over me. And he's like, may you be blessed by the Lord, right? He's not some old perv. What is he doing What is he doing? He's gonna tell her no to her offer, not of marriage, but no to her offer of of intimacy that evening. Why is he saying, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter? Listen to what he says. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. His point of what kindness, what kindness is he talking about? How is it greater than the first kindness? He's not talking about his kindness, her kindness to him. She's trying to lead him into sin. He's talking about her kindness to her mother-in-law. See, you could have gone after some young man because you're a young, beautiful woman. But instead, you're obeying your mother-in-law and coming here and coming after me, an older guy, because you know, you know that I can redeem your family and I can provide for your mother-in-law. In other words, what he's recognizing with Ruth is your kindness to your mother-in-law is great because your motivation isn't your own pleasure and isn't even having your own spouse. Your motivation is caring for her. So you're gonna go after an old dude like me rather than some young virile man because you wanna provide for your mother-in-law. You're being kind to her. And he's recognizing the motivation that's going on in Ruth's heart. Even though Ruth is walking into sin, he recognizes behind her sin is a desire to honor her mother-in-law. She has a good, God-given desire that she is making ultimate. You follow that? And sinning to get it. Look at verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do all that you ask for you all that you ask. In other words, what she's asked is, marry me and be my redeemer. For all my fellow townsmen know that you're a worthy woman. That word worthy there is the same word we pick up in Proverbs 31 where it talks about the excellent wife. Because what he says to her is, I know what you're like, Ruth. You're an excellent woman. You're a woman who seeks the good of others above herself. You're a woman who puts her hand to the work that she's been given all the time. You're a woman who trusts in the Lord. See the picture Boaz sees of a woman who's trying to tempt him into sin? Verse 12 And now it's true that I'm a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. In other words, there's a relative that's closer in order than me. So he goes on, he says, remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. In other words, stay here, lay down, go to sleep. In the morning, I'll go to that guy and ask him if he wants to redeem you. If he doesn't, look what he says. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another and notice the last kindness that Boaz shows to Ruth. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. In other words, he wanted to protect her. He wanted to protect her reputation. See, Ruth is participating in tempting Boaz into sin. Yet Boaz loves the Lord, first of all, enough to flee the situation, doesn't he? He's an older man who clearly finds Ruth attractive. We know that at this point. He probably desires a wife and children. 
And she basically said to him, have your way with me and I'll be your wife. No one's looking. It's dark. No one ever has to know. Hey, I'm going to marry her anyway, so what can it hurt? Yet Boaz knows it's sin. Young single men, I want you to take note of what Boaz does here. You don't say it's dark, I'm going to marry her anyway, no one will ever know. She's going to be my wife. And then lead that woman into sin and disgrace God and her. Boaz protects this woman instead. Boaz loved the Lord above all else, but his love for the Lord doesn't stop there in just showing denial and gratifying his own flesh, his own desires. His love is demonstrated in the way he loves Ruth and Naomi. Think about how he shows love for Ruth. One, he doesn't dishonor her by participating in sin with her. Two, he graciously rebukes her. That he doesn't self-righteously rebuke her. He graciously rebukes her. He recognizes that her motivation is to care for her mother-in-law. And he knows she's going too far in her attempt to honor her mother-in-law, but he doesn't beat her up for that. What does he say? He strikes right at the heart of it and encourages her to trust in the Lord. Listen, trust the Lord. I'll provide everything for you. Don't you recognize what kind of woman you are and have been? Remember that. Third, he honors her excellent woman status. So says, you're an excellent woman. I'm going to honor you. I'm an, I, he's seeking to do, she's, he knows that she seeks to do good to others. He knows that she trusts the Lord. He knows that she's not lazy. In other words, what Boaz does here is interesting. Boaz does not sum Ruth up in totality based upon her current sin. Hear that? Do you hear that? When you're dealing with someone who is in a relationship with you, and they sin against you, one of the worst things you can do is sum them up by their sin. And we do it all the time with people. That's why we have a hard time forgiving anybody. Because we take the entire person, we don't see the idols that work in their lives, we are self-righteous, we don't notice that we have similar idols that we carry out in different ways, and we sum them up by their sin. And Boaz refuses to do that with her. He sees her graciously. He's someone who loves her and is for her, and so he honors her. Fourth, he bears her burden with her. Notice he doesn't just leave her to her fears. He actually promises to be of help to her. I'm going to bear your burden with you. You know, you've got somebody who's caught up in sin. Let's say you come along, we come along young men all the time, caught up in the sin, some sort of sexual sin. All the time. For me to sit there and self-righteously look down upon them in the midst of it and to rebuke them like, are you an idiot? What kind of stupid person does that? Why are you doing that? Don't you love God? Clearly you don't, you jerk. Right? For me to do that is to not recognize that I have sin that I struggle with as well. That I have idols in my life as well. Further, I need to go beyond the presenting sin and go into the idol that's happening in that guy's heart and understand what's going on in him. There's something deeper going on in him. Maybe there's a good God-given desire he's just not trusting the Lord with. And I need to unearth that good God-given desire and point him to trust in the Lord for that. But it goes a step further because I then want to say to this guy, hey, look, I see all these ways God is at work in your life. I'm for you. I love you. I'm thanking God for all these things. I'm not just focused on this one thing. You know when you're rebuked by someone who comes to you graciously, not self-righteously, and who's for you, you know the difference between that and someone who's self-righteously confronting you or someone who isn't really for you, who summed you up by your sin. 
And more than that, he bears his burden, he bears her burden with her. If I come along this young man who's struggling with this, I can't just say, now listen, I've told you the truth, I'll pray for you, you're on your own, have a good one, call me in a couple weeks. I may have to bear that guy's burden with him to the extent that I might have to meet with him two, three, four times a week for a while and bear his burden with him and sort of start to slowly spread out. That's what discipleship looks like, guys. It isn't a formula. And you're bearing each other's burdens with him. And then he protects her reputation. He doesn't want the community to know anything about Ruth except her reputation as a worthy woman. He doesn't go around spreading gossip about her. See, that's how Boaz shows love for Ruth. So we ought to show love for one another. So how does Boaz show love for Naomi? Look at verse 15. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. Now notice that. Give me the garment, hold it out, and he put six measures of barley on it. What is that? That's the equivalent of about 60 pounds of barley. Okay, so we know Ruth is clearly pretty strong. She's going to carry 60 pounds of barley back. That is a lot of barley. Verse 16. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fear, fare, my daughter? Then she told her all the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, Now listen to what he said. You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. You may not have read through Ruth enough times for that to shoot out at you. But if you, if you read Ruth enough, you, you start to notice, what happens at the end of the first chapter? The end of the first chapter, Naomi makes the comment when she comes back home, I went away, I went away full, but I came back empty. I'm destitute. I have nothing. Without a husband, I'm without sons, I'm without money, I'm without land. I'm destitute. I'm empty-handed. And what Boaz says is, Ruth, I want you to go back to your mother-in-law, the one who sent you here to tempt me into sin, so that I provide for you. And I want you to go back and I want you to take all this barley and tell her that I don't want her to be empty-handed. Do you hear what Boaz is doing? He's graciously rebuking Naomi, isn't he? And he's pointed to the fact that you won't be empty-handed, Naomi. The Lord will provide for you. Don't forget that. Trust him. See, he recognizes Naomi's idol and he graciously rebukes her. And he points out that the Lord can be trusted. See, Boaz is a picture of Galatians 6, 1 through 3. If you're, if you're not familiar with that passage, l- let me read it to you briefly. Um, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but Galatians chapter 6, I, wa- I want you to hear what the Apostle Paul tells Christians. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, Ruth and Naomi have just been caught in a transgression or a sin, haven't they? If anyone is caught in it, You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Don't we see Boaz seeking to restore Ruth and Naomi with gentleness? We do, don't we? But look, listen, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. You better not do it self-righteously. You can walk right into the same sin. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens. He picked up their burden with them. Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ, which is to love God and one another. For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Isn't that interesting? You better recognize that you're no better than these other people who are caught in this sin, transgression and sin. And you restore them gently, recognizing that 
being careful because you could be tempted to do the same thing. You're no better than them. And you help bear their burden. So that's the picture Boaz gives us. What is the fruit of Boaz's love for Ruth and Naomi? Well, the gracious rebuke and act of kindness leads Naomi to repentance and trust in the Lord once again. She turns to trust in him again. Look at verse 18. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. In other words, the first time you hear Naomi really say, let's wait. Let's trust the Lord to take care of it. Because she recognized he'll, he'll take care of us. So let's wait for him. Listen, if love for the Lord above all else, like Boaz is showing, and love for others above self, like Boaz is showing, is what slays our idols, how do we have any hope of slaying our idols? Because we look at the example of Boaz, and we think there's no way I could be that guy. None of us can do that perfectly. Even as Christians, we're more like Ruth and Naomi, if we're honest, aren't we? We all fail. And further, if you're an unbeliever, if you're not someone who's looked to Christ and been empowered by the Holy Spirit, you have never acted supremely in love for God and others above yourself. Never. So what hope do we have? See, what happens is you might conclude, well, Boaz is a great example, but his example has no power to redeem us from slavery to idolatry. His example has no power to forgive us from our slavery to idolatry. His example has no power to keep us from returning to our old idolatrous slave masters. So thanks, pastor, for the lesson in morality. I appreciate it. I'm gonna return home feeling beat up, right? And then what I'm gonna hope is that you're gonna have a midweek meeting because even though I'm going to try to do well, by the middle of the week, I'm still going to feel pretty beat up because I'm going to fail multiple times by then. So I hope you have a midweek meeting so I can come back in again and get recharged by you beating me up again so that I feel self-atoned, right? Because while I actually haven't had anybody deal with my guilt, instead what I've done is walked in every week and heard a morality tale and heard principles for living and no one's told me how to deal with my guilt or how to get the power to get out of that sin what I have at least done is I've at least come a couple times a week, felt real guilty, subjected myself to all that, and so I feel a little better about myself. That's not what this story is attempting to do. Let's be clear. If I stopped here, you all have every reason to despair. Every reason. But, but I'm not going to stop here because the author in this text knows, text knows there's a redeemer for us. Hear that? The author is seeming through this text the picture of a kinsman redeemer. Boaz, is, it's known by Naomi that Boaz can be the kinsman redeemer. In chapter 2, verse 20, she says that. It's known by Ruth that Boaz can be the kinsman redeemer. In, verse three, in chapter 3, verse 9, she says you're a redeemer. It's known by Boaz that he can be the kinsman redeemer. And he also knows there's another kinsman redeemer. In chapter 3, verse 13, it says that. So what in the world is a kinsman redeemer? Well, here's what it is. In the Old Testament law, God provided for men and women who died without a son. Hear that? Without an heir. And for women that were left as widows through what's called the kinsman redeemer. If your brother or your relative died and left behind a childless wife, then you would take care of her, you would take her as your wife and produce a son to care for her and carry on your brother's name. Further, you would buy back his land to keep the land in the family. That was all a picture of God's covenantal grace. It's all a picture of God's grace that he promised to Abraham. How so? How is that a picture of that? What did God promise to Abraham? When God covenanted with Abraham, when he came to him and made a promise to him, 
When he covenanted with him, he said he, he promised Abraham he'd have two things. You'll have many sons, and through your sons, through your seed, will come the Messiah. The other thing he promised Abraham is you will have a land. You will have this land, the promised land. When God covenanted with him to have many sons, he said, listen, I'm pointing forward to the Messiah coming through your sons, and he will bless all nations. So that's the importance of having sons in the life of the Israelites. You understand that now, right? And then the other thing is, he, God promised that you will also have a land forever in your possession. The promised land. Which we know points forward to the new heavens and new earth. Why? Because in Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham lived in the land, the promised land, as a sojourner. He lived as one who set up tents because he was waiting for the city whose architect and builder is God, the new heavens and new earth. And so thus the importance of sons and land in understanding that God is blessing us according to the covenant of Abraham. Thus for every man and woman in Israel, the two greatest pictures that you were receiving the blessings of Abraham were through having sons and through owning land. And Naomi and Ruth had neither sons nor land, did they? So they were a picture of women who were under the curse. And in comes Boaz, a relative, a kinsman, a man who was able to marry Ruth and give her a son and buy back the family land. So what good does that all do for us? Because Boaz still isn't our savior. Boaz is a picture. Hear that? The kinsman redeemer is a picture. It's a picture of what God would do for all his people. The kinsman redeemer is a picture of Jesus, the true kinsman redeemer. Jesus came to redeem us. Jesus came to be our kinsman redeemer. He did so so that we'd be forgiven for the penalty of our sin and so that we'd be redeemed from the power of our sin, so that we would be adopted as sons of God and thus brothers of Christ and would experience the blessings of Abraham by living forever in the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. Boaz is a picture of that. And Hebrews chapter two picks that up. So look there, I'm gonna conclude really there. Look at Hebrews chapter two because I want you to see this picture of the brother, Jesus, coming to redeem his people, to return to them the promise of Abraham. Hebrews chapter 2, and let's start in verse 14 and 15, because this theme of kinsman redeemer is picked up, and also the theme of Jesus as the faithful high priest, as the author of Hebrews in the first two chapters is demonstrating that Jesus, the Son of God, is superior to the angels. He's superior to them. And that he became a man for our sake. He's divine and became a man for our sake. Look at chapter 2 and look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in, the, in flesh and blood, this is talking about Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He became our brother according to the flesh, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That's going back to the promise in Genesis chapter 3, that God would crush through the Messiah the head of the serpent, destroying the power of Satan. And he does that through death. Isn't it interesting? He conquers death through death, Jesus does, as our kinsman redeemer. Verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So he came to relieve us from the penalty of the law, which is eternal spiritual death. And he came, and physical death, because there's going to be a physical resurrection as well as a spiritual one. And 
to remove from us the power of sin, the penalty of the law, i.e. not keeping the law, thus we have a penalty for our sin. He came to remove that through his death and to conquer the power of sin so that it doesn't hold us in slavery any longer. Verse 16, for surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He came for the children of Abraham. Therefore, verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for the sins of the people. See, Jesus has come to help you, to serve you and to help you, empower you, remove from you the power of sin, and Jesus has also come Jesus also comes to remove the penalty of sin from your life. He propitiates your sins. What that means is that he pays, he pays the full wrath of God that's due to you for your sin. He comes and does that. And he redeems you from slavery. See, as our brother, our kinsman redeemer, he came graciously and bought us back with his own life. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted See what happens there? You, we're Ruth and Naomi in this story. We're really not Boaz. But because Jesus paid the penalty and he's freed us from the power of sin, we now can be like Boaz because of Jesus. We now can be like Boaz. But that isn't what gets us credit with God. That isn't what pays for our sin. Jesus' work does. But Jesus' work doesn't just give us forgiveness of sins. Jesus' work gives us freedom from slavery to sin. Now we can act in love because we have been loved. Hear that? 1 John chapter 4, let me conclude with this. Verse 9 through 11, I'm going to conclude with this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation the payment of wrath for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that you would help us to be a people who trust that you are a God who loves us and who's good and who provides for us. That we would be a people who flee from our idolatry and trust in you. And Father, we'd be a people who handle other believers well, that we love others well, love you above all else and love others well, Father, so that we don't treat them with self-righteousness on our part, but we love them and serve them and bear their burdens with them and pray for them, rebuke them graciously when they need to be. Father, that we would receive that rebuke graciously from them as well. We pray that you'd make us into people like Boaz was. Father, you would do that because your son, your son was ultimately our kinsman redeemer. Father, we pray that we would trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins and we would trust in him to utterly break the power of sin in our lives, which he has done at the cross. And that we would look to you as both our savior and Lord and our example. That we would know that you loved us well and as a result we would love others well. In Jesus' name, amen.